joys of the church. It was kind of taken away a little bit there from us from COVID. Uh, I always remember my father saying, because uh, he got saved later in life, um, how different it was to actually get together and sing with people. That was like one of the best parts of him becoming a Christian. And then I realized, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Like, yeah, who else gets together to sing besides Christians? <laughs> I mean, it happens once in a while, but you probably grew up in a, if you grew up in a non-Christian home, I don't know if you got together with people to sing. <laughs> um, it's nice. It's one of the the great things of the church. Someone asked me today if I was giving a Valentine's Day message. So I gave him the Christian answer of the gospel is a love story. Every single story is a Valentine's Day message from the Bible. So we're going to talk about three guys got got thrown in a fire. <laughs> There's love there somewhere. No, actually, you know the story because, uh, you know, the Son of God appears in the fire. That's that's some love. Are we all set, my man, in the back? Sir Ed, I'm waiting for the... Oh, thank you, sir. Oh, you guys came. I'm so glad. Sit right there. There's seats in the front. Daniel chapter 3, please. Again, I hope this story is familiar to you. Maybe it is. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I really was encouraged with Craig's message. I know it's it's hard sometimes um, listening to a message online or, or seeing someone on your TV instead of coming to a physical building. But um, I, I was challenged and, and encouraged with some of his points of uh, how easy it is to compromise instead of just simple obedience. But uh, we pick up the, the next half of the story. We're going to start here in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste, and spoke, saying to his counselors, Do we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he said. Or he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. The smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and 
delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut into pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other god who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's look to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, um, it is um, surreal, I guess if that's the word, to think that we are talking to the one as very well likely as the one who walked in the fiery furnace with these three guys. Um, help us, Lord, to have that kind of faith, to understand, that, again, these are just not stories, this is reality. And we know the one who actually went through the flames with these guys. Now, one day, in heaven, we will see them, we will meet them, and maybe hear the stories in a different way of exactly how this all went down. But we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be a people of conviction this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would control me. He might do a tremendous work with all of us here. That we would be a people that would love you no matter what. That we would follow you and obey. And that we would be those who have a testimony of strong conviction. Thank you so much for who you are. May you be honored and glorified above all. In your name, amen. We know the story, right? There's a an image, and everyone has to bow down, and these three refuse. And uh, the king asks them, hey, you know, what's going on here? And they say, listen, regardless of what happens to us, and I'm paraphrasing, we're not going to bow down. And so this is where the story uh, comes to this morning. And so quickly... As we look at this, remember, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of the world and, and sometimes the world systems. Remember, Israel has been taken away because of their own idolatry, their own stubbornness, their own refusal to do what God has asked them to do. So now the world power is going to be a worldly kind of thing, for sure. And Nebuchadnezzar is this um, great king during this time. In verse 19, it says, He is full of fury. I don't know how many times in his life people actually stood up to him and said something right to his face. <laughs> Usually don't do that to the guy that has all power. Uh, you know, it's very hard to even do it to a nowadays bully. The guy that you know has no problem swinging as soon as you say something dumb. Most people don't say that to the bully. Well, this is even that times a lot more. So imagine like the room where they just tell Nebuchadnezzar, no. And, and just, oh, what just happened? Uh, you know, everyone's going, oh, wow, wrong guy to say that to. And you can see maybe he's embarrassed. I mean, he is completely full of fury. And his specs and change, and now he's going to heat up the furnace hotter. Now he's going to kill him. And the reason I say that is I was just, again, uh, reflecting and looking at my own life and maybe the times we're living in. I want to remind us again of, of what, or uh, how dangerous anger can be. When people are angry, uh, just typically it's not a good situation. It's not a good situation. So I just wanted to quickly say, number one, in this story, here's what happened because of his anger. It leads to waste. Did you notice 
where he commanded mighty men of valor. He has an army and he has some of the most courageous, mighty men possibly in the world. And he's choosing them to bind up some 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. Why? <laughs> I mean, no one else could even do this job. But he's, a, he's hot-tempered, he's going to do it. And now some of his most precious, mighty men in his army die. Because some guys didn't want to bow down. And it doesn't seem like they're really fighting that much anyway. Anger a lot of times can lead to waste. Can lead to just good things getting wiped out for no reason. Now, I'm not saying these mighty men were good. I have no idea. But I tell you, the, the scripture says they're mighty and they're courageous. Mighty and courageous. It also leads to quick decisions. All these verses that talk about how the men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans. It's basically an immediate thing. As soon as they say this, he goes, that's it, get them in the fire. Because they would say historically, typically not. If they wanted to kind of have an execution or something like this, they might even uh, try to embarrass them and put them in other clothes or or even kind of make like a, a ceremony kind of deal of the execution. Okay, But not so based on this context. Nebuchadnezzar is like, you get these guys in the furnace right away, kill them, case closed. And I don't know about you, but there's many times where you might say something, you have decided to say something, or even decided to act in anger, and you do it without thinking, very quickly, and just the consequences are detrimental. Detrimental. Remember some of these Proverbs in 14.29, it says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. He who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 9-10 through 10 says, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. The next verse is this, Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? It's unwise of you to ask about this. I don't know about you, but I thought about the times we're living in right now. <laughs> very easy to get very angry very fast. And as believers to go, I wish we had the good old days. The Bible actually speaks against that. The Bible speaks against that. Don't be quick. Again, I want to remind us that anger, unless it is true righteous anger, is not justified. If anger rests inside of you, if you're like me, remember what the Hulk said was his secret? <laughs> I'm always angry. That was the secret. He didn't have to suddenly get angry to be the Hulk. I, I can have that. I can just have a great day and you just say one thing and that anger is just, it's just there. It doesn't have to build up. I don't want anger to reside in me. And I for sure don't want that next verse to be like me always wishing days were better in the past. Because that's the place of a fool. That's the place of a fool. Moving on, this anger... He throws them right in. Verse 25 is awesome. Nebuchadnezzar says, look. He answered, I see four men loose. 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Well, these things are tricky because um, you could take this passage. I mean, it, it, it would in some ways apply. Every time you read fire in the Bible, you shouldn't think of hell. But I know sometimes we as believers do that. There is a truth to it. We will never feel hell. We will never feel the, the pain, the anguish, because of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And sometimes it's good for us to remember that simple truth of what he saved us from. An eternity of pain and anguish, and darkness, and, and, and just all that nastiness describing hell. He has saved us from. And just like uh, in the story here, as it's not even a, a touch of this fire affecting them, your salvation is completely secure in him. You don't get to go to heaven and still have a little guilt. You don't get to go to heaven and just get punished for a few years because you were really bad, and then you, then you get to join the rest of us. That's not how the, the message works. You're redeemed, you are holy, you are blameless, and you enjoy heaven forever. No pain, no suffering. And so there is some of that there. But I know that we go through trials down here on earth. I know we go through trials down here. And I just want to, uh, again, encourage us that Jesus is with us. The very fact, and again, so you could uh, debate, it says uh, the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I think most people would say this is Jesus. I don't know if we can be 100% dogmatic, but I would uh, believe it is the Lord himself. Uh, and he is with them in this. That is comforting. I mean, there's actually other uh, accounts of this story, maybe in other books I've talked about this, say during this time they're singing. They're singing, all four of them. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's an interesting take. Um, can you imagine, they're, you know, they're about to die, or so they would think in their mind. Suddenly they're not dead. Suddenly they recognize who else is with them. I, uh, is it possible for them to be like, oh, no, no, we don't, we don't want to leave the fire. <laughs> no, no, we're good. This, this is fine. We can stay here. I mean, just think of all the emotions that, that are with these three when Jesus shows up. And so I just want to remind us again that he is with us on a day-in, day-out basis. And he's with us in our trials. Remember Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, there's nothing in your life that you're struggling with that you can't go to him and he doesn't understand. One of the the bedrock foundations of our faith is that we don't serve a God that stayed somewhere up in the clouds, created us, and let us go. He became a man and he knows what life's like. So that when we go through trials and tribulations, he actually has a time in his own life where he goes, yes, I've been there. I've been there. I understand. He is not some fluffy God up in the sky that we can't relate to. He's been there, and he was without sin. Not only is he the one that can comfort us, he's the example on how to go through it and still come out without sin. He's an amazing example. He's the one that we can relate to. There was a story once of a man who 
was sitting at his desk one day and he heard the door creak. And then suddenly there was a sharp cry of pain. Looking up, he saw his little daughter who had started to enter the room when her little fingers had caught in the door. He jumped and calling the mother said, you better come and look after this girl. The mother came and taking the child said tenderly, oh, does it hurt so dreadfully? Oh, it hurts, said the child. But the worst is that daddy didn't even say, oh. How we like someone who says, oh, someone who sighs for us, weeps for us, feels with us in our troubles. And you remember what is said of the Lord in all their affliction. He was afflicted. There's numerous verses that say the Lord looked down upon his people and saw them in anguish and remembered his mercy, remembered his love. He hurts when we hurt. The other part about this that's interesting, when it says there in verse 25, he's like the son of God. A good translation is he is a son of the gods. <laughs> now, again, in our Christian faith, typically we take Son of God, we mean right away Jesus. you got to remember, that's not really a good interpretation of this text. And really, it probably should read, the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, I just want you to, to think with me. These guys are young. So Nebuchadnezzar looks at this fourth person and calls him a son of the gods. So to me... That would mean he looks young. Possibly looks around the same age as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why does that actually matter? I just, I, I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm 42 years old. Some say it's young, some say it's old. See, I'm right in the middle. But I want to remind us that he is our peer in every stage of life. I do not uh, deal with just an old father figure in certain stages of my life. I don't just deal with someone young. As, as I grow, not that he changes, but he is able to speak to me in every single stage. When I was a young kid and I understood like a child and I would read of miracles and just think of crazy miracles from the Bible, he was with me in that. When I was growing up and, and deciding to get married, suddenly I'm married. He's now with me in that stage as a married man. Now my faith changed. I have children. He's with me as a father. As I grow old and children leave and every stage, he's a peer to me. And I don't think that's irreverent. He looked young here. Why? Why? I just think it's him telling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm, I'm right here with you. I'm in this stage with you. I'm right here. Spoiler alert, they come out of the fire. And then everyone, again, is just kind of amazed as these verses go that there's not a hint 
not a hint of the fire affecting them, except for the fact that whatever they were bound in is gone. That's some deep spiritual stuff right there. I'll just let you just chew on it a little bit. What they were, how they were bounded, it's gone. Nothing else has changed. Verse 28, it says, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him. They have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies. They should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Verse 28, a pagan king at this time gives great honor in describing their God. He is the God of the Jews and individuals. He calls them the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is a God who sends a savior. He sent his angel. He is a God of great power. He delivered them. He's a God worthy of trust, for they have trusted in him. He is a God worthy of full surrender, for they have frustrated the king's word and then yielded their bodies. He is the God who demands exclusive allegiance, that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. I wanted to focus on that phrase, they frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies. They drew a line in the sand, and they were willing to take the consequences for doing it. They yielded. They were willing to deal with the consequences. I was again, like I said before, really convicted on, on what Greg was talking about, about just how easy it is to compromise instead of just simple obedience. Simple obedience. Frustrated the king's word. They, they heard a decree. They heard the king's decree. You have to do this. And they just basically said, nope, not going to happen. But the idea is, is as soon as they laid out a conviction, they were also willing to yield their bodies. And that's why this story is so encouraging to the church. They're not guys that just are going to say something and then try to debate and get out of it and talk about law and this isn't really a good way to do law, king, and all this stuff. Hey, we're not going to, and guess what? If we lose our lives, then we lose our lives. And that's the conviction. Have you heard that phrase, you don't want to die on that hill, though? Like, we talk about this sometimes when it comes to arguments, right? Like, we say sometimes with teenagers, clean your room, clean your room. And as parents, sometimes we go, do we want to die on this hill? Are we going to make a house and a home where that room's going to be clean no matter what? Or do we just go, there's other battles to fight? And sometimes that's the way we talk about die on that hill. But what we don't seem to know is what do we die for? What is the hill that you do die on? And it seems like Christians don't know anymore. We just don't know. We just like to talk about, yeah, that's a good choice, and yeah, that's wrong, and but I'm not willing to die on that hill. Obedience is always dying on the hill. All the time. These guys had courage to deal with it. 
And there are so many excuses. I remember talking to a couple that wanted to start a new church in inner city, New London, Connecticut, which, first of all, is not that crazy. I mean, it's a little, you know, it's a little rough, but come on, it's Connecticut. And they wanted to move to the city to start a church plant so that they could be in the community. That was just one of their things. And their parents just, I, I remember talking to them. Yeah, listen. But God understands they can minister and still move two towns over. Yeah, but why do they have to live there? I mean, God can help those people. They can, it's already nice enough that they want to help those people. We're talking about where, where we live in America. Guys, I, what are we willing to die on the hill for? Do you have any conviction in your life that no matter what comes, you're dying on that hill? You're dying on that hill. There are certain convictions I have in my life, but as I thought about it, I was like, man, which ones are mine? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach on it. This might upset some of you. I'm not drinking. I'm dying on that hill. <laughs> I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I know that will bother some of you. I'm just saying I'm going to die on that hill. All right. So what are you going to die on a hill for? And, and, it, and really, why, why aren't we seeing more believers with strong convictions in certain areas? Because here's the thing, as we've said a hundred million times, it's not like you have to die on the same hill. But we as believers have been called, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Yet Christ lives in me. Our, our faith is a death sentence. We crucify ourselves every day. Every day we say, we don't get to do whatever we want to do. We have to obey our king. Guys, we're just, we just don't have a lot of strong convictions anymore. We just don't. And I don't think the world's going to change, and neither do I want it to in some ways. But we talk about this all the time, of the immorality and, and, and uh, all the injustices and all that. What, what is the church standing on anything anymore? Wouldn't it be nice to just say, if you're a Christian, you at least think this is wrong. That sh there should be some things that are clear-cut. There really should be. And yet today's world, people got to figure it out. They frustrated the king's word, and then they yielded their bodies. I'm not talking about martyrdom. I'm just talking about individually. I'm not, I'm not talking about corporately. I really need you to get that. Individually, what have you been convicted on that you're not going to change? Guess what? I'm not moving off of this. There's got, there should be stuff in our lives. There should be stuff in our lives. Why is it so hard sometimes to surrender our lives to Christ? There was a story that said of a man who worked many years in New York City, and he counseled that, uh, he talked about a guy counseling an office, a, a number of people who were wrestling with yes or no decisions. He said, often I would suggest they walk with me from my office down to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, 
A beautifully proportioned man with all his muscles straining is holding the world up on his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand up under this burden. Now that's one way to live, I would point out to my friend, trying to carry the world on your shoulders. But now come across the street with me. On the other side of Fifth Avenue, in St. Patrick's Cathedral, there behind the high altar is a little shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old, and with no effort he's holding the world in one hand. My point was illustrated graphically. We have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders, or we can say, I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world, the whole world. There's got to be a willingness for us to die on a hill. And we just give up. Later on, it says there in the verse, they should not serve nor worship any God except their God. Remember, this story is about idolatry. This story is about a man-made image and people having to worship it. I want to remind us again how bad idolatry is and what makes us follow idols. In Exodus 32, it says this in verse 1, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Remember the story of the golden calf? What is it that made the people suddenly want a golden calf? We need someone to go before us. We have to be led. We need someone to direct us. Guys, I think it's in our nature. And I don't think it's in a bad thing. We are created to follow. You know, we hear those things like, don't be a follower, be a leader. But every good Christian leader is a follower. A follower of the Lord. We are designed to be followers. And that's what a people do. There was a physical man, Moses, that I could physically follow over a Red Sea. I could physically talk to him about my problems. Suddenly he's gone, and I don't see someone take his place. So let me make something up that I can just at least say, I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow that. And that's exactly what happens nowadays to us. We are a people that just want to hold on to something. We just got to follow something. Be it a political view, be it a, a, an aspect of our faith sometimes, be it there's so many ways to make idols in our lives. We've got to attach ourselves to some way of living. Something that I can concrete. I can't say that word. In concrete, follow. We have to put something that we follow in our lives. Except the Lord. All those desires in us, all that feeling of need, like I just want to put my faith in something, yes, that's God-given. It's supposed to be Him. It's supposed to be Him. 
But all throughout human history, we have seen humans who get scared, especially if they can't see the unseen God. If things get troublesome, if things get tired, well, okay, I don't know who to follow. And then they just start looking around, looking around, I'll follow that. I'll follow that. And that's what I'll give my life to. Tim Keller described idolatry in Western society as usually being a good thing that is taken too far. He said, working hard is a good thing. Owning a home is a good thing. Having a nice holiday from time to time to relax and rejuvenate is a good thing. The problem is when we take it too far. The danger is that these things control us and consume much of our thought life. That is when idolatry has gotten a foothold in our life. Turn to Colossians 3.5. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There is pagan worship of man-made images like in this story here in Daniel. Then there's good things in our life that become idols. And then, here in Colossians 3.5, there are simply our evil passions and desires that take precedent over our Savior. Idolatry happens to all of us. Idolatry happens to all of us. And I think right now, I want to encourage us that anything that is consuming our minds and our thoughts too much is an idol. Idol. COVID can easily be an idol. Tony Evans said, being black can be an idol. And then the next line was, being white can be an idol too. <laughs> you know, it's Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans. We love to just grab on to some kind of identity outside of Jesus Christ and say, this is where I belong and this is where I'm following. Guys, we need people of conviction that say the only one I'm worried about obeying is the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't, you know, that that's where my passion is. What is the Lord Jesus Christ doing right now? That's what we need. And that's what these guys did. In the midst of a crazy king who was willing to kill them on the spot in a pagan nation as they were trained and ripped out of their own country, they were not going to bend. And the Lord honored them for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you so much, Lord, that as we, um, we shouldn't be contemplating it, but sometimes we do, as we want to give our lives to you, that you actually are worth it. That you are worthy of our lives. Lord, there's, there's no one better. The, the return on giving our lives to you, there's so much reward.
We give our time to you, our money, our resources, our will. Not only are you the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God, you reward those who diligently seek you. There's no better return than giving our life to you. And yet, Lord, from day one, we as humans have turned to other idols. Lord, just give us clarity on what's idols in our lives and what's not. Give us clarity about whether you are first or not. Lord, help us to have conviction. In your name, amen.